Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. In the California Road Trip Republic, we believe you take adventure for a ride. Whether coastal cruising, mountain motoring, or redwood roaming, discover beauty around every turn. Your California road trip can kick off from anywhere. Starting route. But it should always start at visitcalifornia.com. Then buckle up, crank those tunes, and ride with us in the California Road Trip Republic. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. People don't really say great things about actors, but in many ways, this guy was uniquely suited to this job. His sense of his place in the world, his knowledge of dramatic literature, the thing that an actor really handles very well is choices. To be the guy who says, no, I'm not going to take the midnight helicopter out. I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to represent the seat of power for my country. And I'm not even going to do it from a tunnel or a hole in the ground somewhere. I'm going to do it from Kiev. And you go ahead and you try to take us in three days and see what happens. It was something that demanded the talents of an extraordinary actor. And I think he is one. That's the extraordinary actor Liev Schreiber. He's talking about his meeting not long after the Russian invasion of Ukraine with the Ukrainian president and fellow actor Volodymyr Zelensky. Liev and I have acted together over the years, but we're not talking about acting today. We're talking about helping the people of Ukraine survive this brutal war. It turns out Liev has a special connection to Ukraine. I'm really glad to be talking to you, Liev, because... You're connected to Ukraine in a way that I wasn't aware of. And I really needed to know somebody who was connected with Ukraine when the war started because I wanted to pitch in like so many of us. And I didn't know where to go or what to do. I would have called you had I known of your connection. I didn't have my connection. Well, you did. Your grandfather came from Oh, that, right. Yeah. Oh, that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that little chestnut. A lot of people called me, uh, you know, assuming that because I had Ukrainian ancestry and I'd, I'd made everything as illuminated and that there was this connection between me and Ukraine, called me wondering, you know, what they could do. And the reality is I had no idea. I was fortunate enough to have some friends reach out to me who were a little more organized about this stuff and had some thoughts and feelings about it who, who ultimately helped me start Blue Check. So blue check Ukraine. Mm. What what do you do? How does it work? It's essentially a pass through for people who want to support Ukraine, uh, who want to support humanitarian aid in Ukraine. And what we do is we've gone to Ukraine. We've developed a relationship with the various ministries in Ukraine, as well as the president's office. And we handpick... NGOs that uh, we feel are doing the most work on the ground in Ukraine to support the population. Uh, 
A huge international law firm, Ropes and Gray, has been incredible and has been doing all of the vetting work for us pro bono. It's super important that you are A, transparent, and, and B, you have a, a really rigorous vetting process for the NGOs that you're going to support. Uh, and then our idea is to put together a diverse enough portfolio of NGOs so that we're covering all the bases, because as you probably know, need in, in, in a place like Ukraine, uh, in a war zone, is, is, is kind of a, a fluid thing. It's a moving target. Mm. So we've got people who are doing shelters. We've got people who are taking care of the homebound elderly. We've got people who are offering prescription medication. We've got people who are doing services for children and, and teachers and schools on how to do that. We've got people who are providing um, a 24-7 trauma hotline. We have people who are do specialize in prosthetic medicine, which is a big need over there, mm. and all sorts of other things. Um, but that's that's essentially what Blue Check is. It's a pass-through for, for your donations and your support. So if somebody goes to the website, Blue Check, yeah. do they get to pick, do they need they pick a particular avenue to travel, or does Blue Check distribute money that comes in in the way that seems most beneficial at the time? That's how we do it. I mean, when we first started talking about it, we thought, well— you know, we could we could build our portfolio and then people could give where they want to give. And maybe we'll do that. Uh, but right now, because it's such an acute uh, situation, um, uh, we would rather give the grants equally to our partners who, who we think need them. I suppose because of what you said about how fluid the situation is, it's kind of important to be timely about your your information so you know where it's most needed where it can do the most good. That's right. And, and right now, the most acute need, uh, as, as you probably know, is medical infrastructure and generators. I've been working a lot with the President's Fund, which is United24, to help uh, raise money to just buy, buy generators so that the medical infrastructure can, you know, basically so that people can keep treating the sick and the wounded. While we're on it, I think we should say this a couple of times during this conversation. How do they get in touch with Blue Check? Well, there's a website, uh, www.bluecheck.in, that has all of our information and our, and our donation page. Um, we've got some media sites on there. We've got our partners, and, and people can have a sense of what we do. Uh, I'm also an ambassador for the President's Fund, which is United24, and uh, I think that's u24.gov.ua. Um, that was tricky for us because that uh, the, the President's Fund is a kind of three-tiered fund. One element of it is medical aid, uh, one element is, is uh, military, and one element is the reconstruction. And um, for us, because we're a neutral aid organization, in other words, we don't do anything military or mm -hmm. political, um, uh, the president was kind enough to carve out this uh, medical aid piece, which is uh, right now extremely important because, as as you probably know, the uh, the medical infrastructure in Ukraine has just been decimated by the shelling um, uh, because of the lack of uh, the the energy infrastructure rather has been decimated by the shelling, and so. Um, they have to be really, really careful about how they budget their use of the grid. And uh, obviously, we want to prioritize things like hospitals. 
That must have been an incredibly interesting moment to meet President Zelensky. Yeah. What, what was that like for you? It was extraordinary. I've, I've been a great admirer of his, uh, dare I say fan, because I, I, I just, you know, the guy's an actor. I had to see his work. I had to know who was this person. Yeah, I did too. I watched the show. What did you think? Well, I'll tell you, I had two very strong feelings at the same time. Yeah. I was enjoying this lighthearted satire yeah. where a high school teacher talks informally to his class about the corruption in their government, and one of the kids or somebody photographs him on an iPhone, and he suddenly finds himself a candidate for the presidency and then wins. So that's a lighthearted satire. Right. At the same time, I'm watching these performances, and I'm thinking, I don't know if these people are still alive, if they're wounded, can they, is there any place they can do their work anymore? Right. And I'm looking at all of the towns, the beautiful cities, and I'm comparing them to what I'm seeing on the news, utter mm. devastation. Yeah. I was, that, that overpowered me more than anything. What about you? What, what, was, what was your impression watching this show? I'm a much more shallow person than you, Alan. And all, I was trying to, <laughs> all I was trying to establish, is this guy a good actor or not? Uh, I, just wa I wanted to know more about his personality, and, and I wanted to know what kind of actor was he. Um, and he's clearly a deep enough actor or an intelligent enough actor to know that the second half of this story has to be Henry V. And... Uh, um, yeah. And that I and, and, and I, I was speaking to someone else about this like last week, and it had occurred to me that, you know, people don't really say great things about actors, but in many ways, this guy was uniquely suited to this job. His sense of his place in the world, his knowledge of dramatic literature, his the thing that an actor really handles very well is choices. What's the right choice to make now? Mm. And in, in the historical context and the dramatic context of everything was that to be the guy who says, no, I'm not going to take the midnight helicopter out. I'm going to stay here and I'm going to represent the seat of power for my country. And I'm not even going to do it from a tunnel or a hole in the ground somewhere. I'm going to do it from Kiev. And, and, and you go ahead and you try to take us in three days and see what happens. It was something that demanded the talents of an extraordinary actor. And I think he is one. Um, I also think his wife is an extraordinary... The two of them work together, uh, and they're, they had a satire show, and they have a very interesting and dark, deep sensibility that I think has also been useful to him. Um, and she's extraordinary. I don't know if you've had a chance to hear her speak. No, um, I haven't. I interacted with her briefly at, we were over there uh, working with a group called Superhumans that's trying to build a hosp hospital um, that primarily caters to uh, people who need prosthetics. And I watched her go to all of these uh, victims of the war one by one and talk to them all. And what struck me uh, was that this was one of those things, and I'm sure you've been on them before, where there is a profound... Uh, sense of purpose to them, but at the same time, it's also they've drawn the press there. 
to kind of let people know what's happening so you can raise money for the cause, you can talk about it. And I'd never seen somebody so conscious of being filmed or photographed and, and really be honest about it. Like she would turn her back to the cameras to speak to these people because she felt it was an invasion of her privacy to have a real conversation with someone on video. Uh, Which is an actor and is someone who sort of takes that stuff for granted. Yeah, and uses it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. right. You know, I'm like, oh, no, I got a monologue for this, or I've got a bit I can do <laughs> with yeah, that's, this guy. That struck oh. me about, that has struck me over and over again about Zelensky. Mm. He's a fine actor, and I was, mm. I have to say, I had a similar reaction to you. Proud to see an actor take on a responsibility like this mm. and shine and especially use his ability as an actor not to be actorish when he's conducting his leadership. Yeah. He's true. He's a true person. He's, you don't think he's showing you somebody who he's not. That's who you know who he is. You know, you know he's that person. Right. And that, you know, the best actors can do that. Right. They understand the right choice. Not, not if you're looking to be bombed any minute. It's, you don't expect that. Yeah, that's remarkable. What about that when you were there? How many times since the war started have you been there? Three. Three times? Mm. So when you go there, I would imagine you have this sense that, is it safe walking down this street? Is this building the next one to go? How do you, how do you handle feelings like that? And my first trip, I wasn't anywhere near, uh, dangerous at all. It was mostly Poland and Lviv. Uh, the second trip I took, we went to Kiev and Bordyanko and these areas that, you know, where there had been real horror stories. I wasn't scared in Kiev. I think you're, you're too distracted by what's happened to others to kind of be afraid for yourself when you see uh, someone's home just leveled to the ground. It, you're, you're too busy thinking about the implications of that to be aware that another rocket could be heading towards you at that moment. I think it, w it was a little more abstract for me on the train from Poland to Kiev. There were a couple times when the train would stop and the lights would go out and those, those were nerve wracking for me. The idea of being, <laughs> being stuck, you know, a frozen target. Um, those, those moments were scary, but I, I, I don't think I was ever scared when I was in Kiev or Borodyanko. You made me think when you were talking about speaking with people who have just been through this horrible experience, and I, I, I saw a video of you with the, uh, the Philharmonic in Ukraine. That was extraordinary. Very moving. The woman, she's a, the manager of the orchestra. Yolanta is just the most extraordinary person. When you asked her what she would have to say to people who might be considering donating. It was, which, which, what she said was the opposite of a fundraising pitch. It still makes me cry. It's the one thing that I, like it's a great source from now on, great source material for me from now on, if I ever Anytime need to cry. Anytime you need to cry. I think of Yolanta's line. I asked her, you know, because I was there to raise money and I'm filming these people to bring something home that'll tug at the heartstrings of Americans and get them to, you know, help. And I said to Yolanta, 
who's this extraordinary woman who's the director of the Lviv Symphony Orchestra, who overnight turned her 70-person orchestra into a humanitarian aid distribution hub. Um, they can't perform anymore because of the war and because of the pandemic, but yet these are all classical musicians at the top of their field, and so they need to practice every day. They practice, they've taken all the seats out of the theater and then, and so that they can fill the theater up with boxes and boxes of medical aid and things like that. And, and they practice and practice and then they kind of create this chain of people where they fill up trucks with aid and, and they take it around to the front lines and around to people who need it. I got the impression that they'd be rehearsing and the trucks would arrive with boxes of medical supplies. They'd put down their instruments and go out and make a chain putting the boxes in the theater. Yeah, they, they, they well, she, Yolanta was pretty, they had a schedule where they would work for four hours or something and then they would take a break and they would do, they would load trucks or they would do whatever they, they needed to do that day. Um, but, uh, you know, when I arrived there, it's in this sort of beautiful old theater, a very unassuming, small, small on the small side, and I have got my camera out because I'm trying to make some video. And I, I'm at the door. I don't know. You've probably seen the video. I open the door and there's this or full orchestra on stage playing Mozart's Requiem, which yeah. if, you, if you don't know that piece, when you've done listening to our podcast, please go listen to it and imagine what I'm saying to you. It's an extraordinary piece. And you hear Mozart's Requiem. And I'm looking around this theater that's filled to the rafters with aid and help. So I, I'm talking to this woman, trying to create a compelling video, and I say, what would you say to Americans who are considering helping in Ukraine? And she thinks for a moment, and I can see something turn inside her that seems painful or complicated. And then she sort of shakes it off for a minute. And then she says, well, if the war hasn't convinced them, I really don't know what I can say to them. But what I will say is hold the people that you love close to you. It just knocked me out because the existential reality of that, for, first of all, it's such incredibly good advice yeah. in, for life in general. But then when you think about someone whose life is, it maybe is in danger, the existential reality of hold the people that you love close to you is so powerful. Um, and I don't think you could make a better case for helping because they are the people that we love. It's very moving to see her in a moment when you ask her to express her need. She talks about the need of people she doesn't yeah. even know. You might go through something as heartbreaking as this. Use the time you have now with the people you love. Yeah. And don't yeah. and don't take it for granted. Yeah, that that's, that's right. A, thinking of the other person in the worst possible circumstance. Yeah, and I guess also maybe in Yolanta's case, which is part of what I love about her, there's something selfish about loving the people that she loves. That's what makes <laughs> yeah. her the most happy. Do you know? Yeah, right. What right. makes her the most happy is to hold her grandchildren close or to see her her daughter or her friends or the other musicians and to be with them is the best thing that she can do. And those are the kind of people that, that I found repeatedly over and over in Ukraine, Ukraine who are doing the work. Those are the boots on the ground people.
When we come back from our break, Lieb Schreiber talks about how he's been shaped by his Ukrainian grandfather, who helped raise him as a child. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. Complemented by an interior built with integrity, the Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Lieb Schreiber. We'd been talking about the extraordinary resilience of the people he'd met in Ukraine. Where do you suppose this resolve comes from? The, the ability to keep saying no to this aggression, which is heartless and cruel. I thought about that a lot because I think the first thought I had when I was on my couch with my kids watching the war unfold back in February and March. And I was seeing these um, busloads of regular guys, you know, like school teachers and graphic artists and bricklayers saying goodbye to their children and their families and getting on a bus to fight in a war in which they're kind of wildly outmanned and outgunned. And me thinking to myself, wow, those are Ukrainians and I'm... I have a Ukrainian grandfather. Am I a Ukrainian? Could I do that? Could I kiss my kids goodbye and get on a bus and without any military training, go fight in a war? 
And it really seemed extraordinary to me. And I, and I said, I, no, I don't think I could. And then I heard someone, I read somewhere else, someone talking about um, that it, for these, for them, it's an existential choice. They really have no choice. That's they either do it or they have no home. They have nothing to come home to and they have nowhere to live. Um, and I think that's, what makes them so uniquely suited to this ground war that we never thought we'd see? They're fighting an existential war, whereas most of these Russian soldiers have no idea why they're there. They're looking around for Nazis, um, or at best, or, you know, looting. Um, whereas the, the Ukrainians are fighting for their very existence. And I think that's the piece that makes them continually say, no, no, I will not stop existing. I will not stop speaking my own language. I will not stop voting for my own leaders. I will not stop living. You mentioned your connection just now to your grandfather. Was that a strong connection? Did you experience him for a long enough time to get a sense of who he was and where he came from? No, he never talked about where he came from. But as you know, he was my mentor. He was everything to me. He was every role I ever played was probably some version of Alex. Um, he was the man in my life. Uh, I grew up with a single mom in the Lower East Side of New York, and he was the guy, uh, my mother's father. Uh, but he was a he was a Jewish man, and uh, he had left. Uh, uh, I think around 19, he had, with his sister came in around 1911. I think he had probably had been moved around a lot in the pogroms and had lost family in the Holocaust and been bounced around Eastern Europe and struggled with it. And I think wanted to be American. Um, uh, I think that was very important to him that he didn't want to be Jewish. He didn't want to be Eastern European. He didn't want to be Polish. He didn't want to be Ukrainian. He wanted to be American. And so mm. when he came here, he didn't talk about where he was from, which was something that in the, when I got out of graduate school, and I, I was really trying to get out of him because I wanted to know more about his history and who he was, but he didn't like it. It's funny, I never really focused on your grandfather's background, which is odd because when we first met, we were rehearsing Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Yeah. And during the day we'd rehearse, and at night you'd be editing a movie you had just directed called Everything is, Illum Everything is Illuminated. Yeah. And that's the story of a guy who goes to the Ukraine to find out about his grandfather's life. Yeah. And you had a, here you are directing this movie. Did you make the connection at the time? Did it seem to be happening to the characters, or was some of it happening to you? Well, what happened, I, I wrote a script because I was so obsessed with, this was after my grandfather died and I was really obsessed, obsessed with his history. So I wrote this very dark script about a guy who goes to Ukraine to find out, to find his heritage, to find out what it is to be Ukrainian. He falls in love with a prostitute who's tied into the mob over there, gets robbed, left penniless in the streets of Odessa, and realizes that's what it is to be Ukrainian. And you, you seem to think this is dark. Well, no. I, I, <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> yeah. I was reading fiction for The New Yorker, and Bill Buford gave me a story called The Very Rigid Search, which was an excerpt from a novel that Jonathan Safran Foer had written called Everything is Illuminated. 
And I felt like Jonathan in this, inc- in this incredible short story did everything that I was trying to do except with humor and compassion. And mm-hmm. it was so much better than what I had tried to do in my script. I met with him, asked him if I could adapt it, and God help him, he said yes. And a couple of weeks later, it came out and was on the cover of the New York Times book review, and I was terrified because <laughs> his, his, his book was a hit. Well, you made a wonderful movie. Thank you. And I didn't know until this minute that it really, your involvement with it really came from your own desire to understand your grandfather more. Yeah. Do you still think of that when you, when you go back to Ukraine? Are you thinking, he was here, he was in this culture, maybe he was in this cafe? Yeah. I couldn't find the village that he was from. Uh, like huh. a lot of these villages, they were, uh, they moved, they were wiped out. Uh, and um, I have all these old pictures of his father and mother and his sisters and brothers. And I, it's, it's a different world now. And I don't recognize it. I don't, I mean, I didn't do any of those Jewish heritage tours that, that the people do over there, that Jonathan did, that made him write his book. Um, I just wanted to kind of go and feel what it felt like to be there, mm. both in Odessa and Kiev. And I couldn't really feel my grandfather. I couldn't even really feel the Jewish diaspora, for that matter. In Odessa, a little bit more. Mm. But... Um, there's something about Zelensky that kindles a little bit in that regard for me, not just because he's Jewish. Well, I, I, it's, it's probably A, because he's Jewish, but I think he represents something that is evocative to me of the, of the tumult and the, and the revolutions and the shifts and the geopolitical changes. He represents someone who says, stop. No, no more. Um, we've been through this already, and it's crazy. And and that that reminds me of the the kind of jigsaw puzzle of Eastern Europe, and um, how hard it has been. And and it, just one aspect of that is the kind of the the, the Jewish diaspora, you know. Um, but that's definitely in there for me with him, someone who's defiant enough to say, no, we're not going to move. We're not going to leave. This is our land, and we're going to stay here, and we have every right to stay here. It's thrilling to see somebody emerge as a leader, and not in this case, not just a leader of his country, but he's, he's caught us all up around the world in this rush of feeling of, don't step on me. You don't have the right. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how, what a, what a communicator he is. Yeah. Without, without using the stereotypical notions of what we think of, what many people think of actors possessing. Yeah. I think that also the, the principles and the values that he represents are... Um, really moving to me and very powerful at a time when, you know, uh, our political discourse lacks any kind of civility or rational. (laughs) It becomes irrational quite easily to have somebody who, aside from being the defiant militaristic leader, is also a great diplomat and is Mm -hmm. very engaging um, 
to be reminded, I remember, you know, the, 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 the whole, when Giuliani was trying to dig up stuff on Hunter Biden, uh, my first impression of him was during that uh, episode. And there was, <laughs> I just remember a, a camera shot because you know me, I'm an actor. I just, I'm like watching behavior. And there's a sequence of shots that are around uh, the conversation about um, that uh, as a favor, they would like him to dig up something on um, Hunter Biden. And it's yeah. just a shot of him across a desk looking very bemused at Yermak, like trying to understand what the hell is going on. <laughs> it just seems so out irrational. And we've come to accept so many strange things as commonplace in this country, you know. Like our our political discourse has kind of become a team sport, you know. It's, it's you're either blue or you're red, and there's and and issues and uh, don't really matter anymore. And common sense is on the table. It's it's negotiable. I remember you saying in one of the interviews about Ukraine, you said Putin made a big mistake thinking he could keep dividing us when he when he attacked Ukraine, he united us. That's right, I think. At least briefly. I mean, you know, red and blue in this country were behind the war. And hopefully yeah. it, it stays that way. Because I do think that that is the, the you know, Ukraine is the gates of democracy to Western Europe. And... I think it's really important. Tell me about the project that's coming up, because it's about as serious a theme, but more distant in time and place. You play, you play Otto Frank. Huh? Yeah, I play Otto Frank. It's a very funny story I have to tell you about that. I was asked to do a story about Meep Geese, who is the woman who hid the Frank family for the entire time that they were in hiding in the annex, and the person really who took the greatest risk, uh, not a Jewish person, a, a Dutch girl, who uh, had developed a friendship and a loyalty with her boss, and he asked her to do it. She said, yeah, of course I'll do it. Didn't hesitate to, to, to help. Anyways, so as we all know, Otto was a very skinny guy. And of course, towards the end of uh, the story, when he leaves the camps, he's uh, emaciated and, and almost doesn't survive. I tried to lose the weight for the role and failed completely. In fact, I was probably at the heaviest I've been in years. But I think I can still pull off this role. And I go over there and, I'm, and I'm, I have this incredible tour of the Anne Frank house with like the leading um, uh, academic expert on Anne Frank, this very, very knowledgeable guy. And uh, I walk in the door to meet him and I'm so excited to meet him. And he kind of looks me up and down. And of course, in my, you know, perpetual neurotic state. I know exactly what he's looking at, how fat I am, right? And he looks me up and down. I go, I know, I know, I know. I tried to lose the weight and I, and, and I, I couldn't do it. And I, I, I get it. I'm sorry. And I'm, I think I'm still going to play the role well, but, you know, I'm sorry. And he looks at me and he goes, Otto, hmm, more like Lotto, Frank. <laughs> and for the entire <laughs> tour, he's throwing all these barbs at me about how fat I am. And I'm there with my family. Like, we'd walk into another room and he'd be like, Auto XL, come along, roly poly man. It's one after the other. This huge. Uh. Anyways, look, Lotto so, Frank. Yeah, Lotto Frank. Um, this was a story, and I wasn't really thinking about working. You know, I, we had just wrapped, and I was eight years of Ray Donovan, and wasn't looking for a job. But um, Tony Fellon and Joan Rader 
sent me this incredibly contemporary and I think really prescient script about Meep Geese's story. And, uh, and basically just someone who said yes, someone who said yes to helping, uh, to reaching out and, and doing something. And I think that for me and the time I spent in Ukraine and meeting people like Yolanta and, uh, and Pavlo Shula and all the extraordinary people that I've met who are giving so much of their time and lives and everything, uh, it just seemed like the right story to talk about how it's in our nature to care about each other, how it really is in our nature to take, to take care of each other and, and say yes and, 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 and reach out. Well, I want to say one more time before we go, the link to the website. It's bluecheck.in, www.bluecheck.in. All right, great. We always end our show with seven quick questions. With the last time you were on the show, you answered seven quick questions, but neither of us probably remembers what they were. No Maybe it'll be different this time. Okay. The, The answers, I mean. So, okay, number one, what do you wish you really understood Oh, geez. Did you really ask me this last time? I'm pretty sure. Well, this shows you don't have it in your hip pocket. That's good. This will, I, this will I come guess, from your uh, gut. Uh, what is I really wish I understood? I guess um, myself. Uh, oh, nobody ever I said think, that. That's interesting. Really? I, yeah. I, I wish I, uh, I... I don't know. I, I, I think... I don't know. I think that for me, acting and uh, and everything else has been a journey about self-discovery and uh, getting to a point where I um, can understand why I behave the way I behave and maybe try to do a better job of it. Number two, how do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? <laughs> I do remember this one, but I don't remember what I said. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I think I'm, I think I, I pretty much say you have your facts wrong. I think that's my approach. <laughs> I wish I was one of those people who just kind of kept his mouth shut and looked at the ground, but no, I, I tend to say you're wrong. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? The strangest question anyone has ever asked me? Oh, oh, what role have you always dreamed of playing? I don't know why I find that such so strange. Is that odd to you? Because I don't really think I don't like I don't like have Hamlet in my back pocket or anything. I wouldn't be playing roles if I knew what I wanted to play. Do you know? That's a, <laughs> yeah, I have the same uh, reaction. Yeah. It yeah. doesn't seem strange because everybody asks it. Yeah. But so it's, it's the commonness takes away some of the strangeness. But it is. I I I take what's in front of me and make something of it. I don't have exactly. A plan. Yeah, that's it. And, you know, the minute you have a plan, it's usually bad, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right. <yeah. laughs> okay, next one. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Uh, oh, I know. I remember this one. And I, I think my answer is the same. I just sort of stare into space as if I were, you know, <laughs> as if I just had the... Yeah, it does work. It does work because they're just like, oh, you're not listening anymore, are you? I just stare into space <laughs> as if I've had... I've just had a, uh, a, a stroke or something. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> okay. Let's say you're sitting next to someone at a dinner table who you've never met before. How do you start up a genuine conversation? 
I'll ask them why they're here, what they're doing here, what brought them here, something like that. Okay, next to last, what gives you confidence? There's a terrible, terrible admission I'm going to make. But I think it's attention. (laughs) I love that. Does that make any sense to you? I love it. Yeah, of course it does. And I love how you preface it with how terrible it is. (laughs) (laughs) I hate to say it, but it is kind of the way of the actor. (laughs) I know. I denied Uh, that for decades, and then I realized uh, I probably shouldn't. uh, Okay, last question. What book changed your life? I think it was, there's two. My favorite book is Anna Karenina um, because he's the only guy who could write existentialism. The thing where she looks down and then the train and then she's gone was incredible for me. But the thing that I think probably really changed my life was Shakespeare. And um, and when George Wolfe invited me into the public theater and, and I, I got to start doing plays in New York and Central Park, that I think that was the big thing for me. Mm. This has been so much fun. This is the best talk we ever had. We've known each other for a long time. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. It's always great talking with you, Alan. Thanks, Leah. This has been Clear and Vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep Clear and Vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Liev Schreiber has acted in dozens of movies, but he's probably best known for his seven seasons in the title role of the Showtime series, Ray Donovan. I played his psychiatrist in several episodes, and we acted together in the 2005 Broadway production of the David Mamet play Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. You can see Liev as Anne Frank's father, Otto, in the Disney Plus miniseries, A Small Light. That streams later this spring. And you can make donations to the Ukrainian relief fund he organized by going to the website bluecheck.in. And by the way, the welcome page of bluecheck.in has a great photograph of the Lviv Philharmonic Orchestra as they rehearse in their theater that's stacked with the relief supplies that your donation can help purchase. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Nita Farahaney. In her new book, The Battle for Your Brain, she looks ahead to an alarming future in which our brain waves can be hacked without our even realizing. When we think, when we do anything, 
Neurons fire in our brains. They give off tiny electrical discharges, and those electrical discharges can be picked up by these consumer EEG, electroencephalography devices. They can be a headband. They can be um, newer ones are integrating into earbuds or headphones. And it's easy to imagine how if these headsets become more widespread and people have access to the brain data that the headsets and earbuds and other things are generating, that that kind of subliminal priming to probe the brain for information can be possible without a person even being aware of it. Nita Farahany and the need for an international human right to cognitive liberty. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.